Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, statues that made history with Alex von Tunzelman and her new book, Fallen Idols. Alex von Tunzelman is a best-selling author, screenwriter, broadcaster and media commentator. And her latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Fallen Idols, 12 Statues That Made History. Alex, welcome to Little Adam. Thank you so much for having me on, Neil. First of all, I'm not sure if this is the right way to describe it, but I have to admit I sort of resent a little bit having to talk about this. I mean, which is not quite as bad <laughs> as having to write a book about it. But it does strike me that a lot of the people that this book would potentially be aimed at know damn well that they're not being truthful when they make the arguments you know it's, it's all part of this sort of culture war but let's talk about why you felt why the need to write this book now well look you're absolutely right there's loads of bad faith discussion around statues and we've seen a lot of that and I kind of I start with some of the introduction uh, you know some of our faves such as Donald Trump kind of launching into ideas that taking down statues erase history and all of that. But what really struck me last year when, you know, we did see this kind of extraordinary wave of iconoclasm, you know, statue toppling all across the world, really, in response to um, the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of after the, the killing of George Floyd. And that was something that was actually quite historically fascinating and new. There have been many, many waves of iconoclasm before. I mean, obviously, things like fall of communism, French Revolution, English Reformation, lots of these big, big waves of this happening. But this was something that was really global, not actually localised. It was happening all over the world. And... You know, when this happened in the UK as well, I mean, the actually people go on and on and you talk about your bad faith discussions. I mean, lots of discussions of woke mobs, they usually called tearing down statues. And actually only one statue was taken down by protesters in the UK, which was Edward Colston in Bristol. Everything else was taken down by authorities. But there was a, clearly there was a lot of also genuine anxiety about what was happening here about history and heritage and so on and I sort of thought well it's just a good opportunity really to get people thinking about some of these questions and to look into the stories of okay what are these you know what are statues <laughs> who puts them up who pulls them down you know do they get put up again sometimes what are these kind of, you know dig into these stories a bit and really try and use them as a kind of portal to look at history more generally and you do dismantle some of those bad faith arguments in the book and we'll come back to that at the end of the interview after we've looked at some of the the sort of historical examples. Before we begin, though, and this may seem like 
uh, first answer crazy question, but I want to talk about what a statue actually is, because there's lots of different forms of public monuments, whether that's, you know, Cleopatra's Needle or whether it's a sculpture or art or even some types of buildings could be considered public monuments. So what are we talking about when we talk specifically about statues? I think that's actually a really important question because so I've specifically looked at what are called honorific portrait statues. So what that means is a statue that is representative of and dedicated to one individual. So these are the kind of ones that you're probably highly familiar with. Everybody will have seen these around. You know, it's normally some kind of supposedly worthy person, sometimes on a horse, that's an equestrian statue, sometimes just sort of standing solo or sitting or whatever. But really, I am just looking at the ones that represent one individual. And that's quite deliberate because I think they can be considered separately. You're absolutely right, loads of other forms of memorialisation. I mean, I think it's a different thing from, say, a more generalised war memorial um, or, as you say, obelisks and so on. And partly that's because I think there's something almost religious about our relationship to statues. And of course, there are also religious statues, but they're not really regarded as honorific. It's a separate, a separate genre of statue. But we relate to them in a way that is slightly kind of religiously informed. And I think that's partly because statues look like people. So we have trouble disaggregating that effectively from them being just lumps of stone. I mean, nobody gets particularly upset if you knock over an obelisk, but if you go for something, you know, smashing the face in or something that looks like a person feels violent, even if it isn't. So I think they command us sort of, you know, and obviously lots and lots of cultures have actually used statues as religious objects. They've bathed them and given them offerings and clothed them and so on. So, you know, so we do relate to them in quite an emotional way. And it's interesting you talk about how, and I think definitely in this culture war discussion around statues as sacred objects that represent an actual person, because actually, and I think as the paraphrase someone you quote in the book, you know, there's nothing more invisible than a statue. There are hundreds <laughs> of these statues in London. You walk past them every day, don't even notice they're there. Never mind notice so it's actually on. Yeah, they're super easy to ignore. That's one of the things about them that's quite interesting is that actually people completely forget about them until somebody says, let's take it down which point it becomes a fight, you know, <laughs> which is also quite interesting. All the people alter them. I mean, you also find a lot of creative alteration of statues, which I also think is quite fascinating. But yeah, I mean, they kind of, it's sort of fascinating. People really do sort of forget they're there. But then, you know, how do you reconcile the fact that you're absolutely right, you know, that you will probably walk past, if you live in a big town, you may well walk past one every day and not give it a second thought. How do you reconcile that with governments in the UK and US saying that, if anyone damages it, they have to go to prison for 10 years. I mean, longer than many serious violent offences against living humans. So clearly they do matter at some level. So I really wanted to kind of get in and unpick that. As well as you know, the discussion of the, the Polydelum statues in here, there's a fascinating discussion about the fashion of how statues were designed in terms of what the clothes, the subject of the statue, would be wearing in the finished statue. Not least the, uh, the trouble of making statues of people in any sort of form of modern dress. Yeah, this came up with regard particularly to Cecil Rhodes. So obviously, like traditionally, I mean, in terms of European statuary, and I mean, just to be clear, statuary is actually something that exists all over the world in every kind of continent every inhabited continent we say there's some form of individual statuary does occur but in the kind of European tradition you know obviously we go back to the Greeks and Romans who really the Greeks particularly kind of started this 
fashion for the honorific portrait statues of individuals, usually of worthy individuals of a town. And of course, those statues would always be wearing what we would now think of as classical dress, you know, often sort of toga type things or or near equivalents. Or of course, they'd be completely naked. That's called heroic nudity, which is also um, a fashion for statues. And in the modern world, when they kind of, you know, really the Victorians kind of went through a big phase called statue mania of, uh, that's what they called it, of doing statues again. And, And quite often they would again put them in classical dress you would often see a figure in a toga but as you kind of get more and more into the modern world this starts to become a bit of a problem because it seems a bit pretentious really to put a modern figure in classical dress but also dress particularly men's dress changes very substantially so you know if you look at kind of statues from the sort of 18th century or whatever they've you know usually got these sort of big billowing cloaks and there's a kind of impressive form but then when you get into the 20th century you get people like Cecil Rhodes well they don't wear those they have to wear a suit and funnily enough you put a person in a suit on top of some big old pedestal and it just looks a bit ridiculous You know, there's kind of no volume to the form. So I think this is why you often see 20th century statues. They try and get around this. So that's why I think Lenin was always sculpted with his big billowing greatcoat was actually just to give him some heft. I mean, otherwise, if you've got someone with a suit just standing on top of a column, it's quite comic. Actually, it does look a little bit odd how he's plonked there. So this was a problem and they tried to solve it with the first statue of Cecil Rhodes, the only one that was uh, that he posed for, uh, which went up in Bulawayo in southern Africa. The sculptor John Tweed put him in this suit and he tried to sort of make the suit billow a bit to sort of, you know, so it looked like it was kind of in movement. And the effect was really wasn't very good, I'm afraid. It kind of just looked like he was in a baggy suit in a high wind <laughs> on top of his plinth. And Cecil Rose himself absolutely hated the statue and tried to stop it being put up. But he died before it was finished, so they put it up anyway. So. He was trying to erase history, Alex. He was. He erased his own history. So so that kind of is his interaction with statues was actually not very keen on it. <laughs> too too okay. vain. Didn't like it. <laughs> well, let, let's look at some of the examples that you, you describe in the book of the sort of rise and fall of, of people and their statues. Because there's lots of examples of where, you know, now we tend to think again, you know, you talk about you know, the Edward Colson statue. But yeah, this idea that to pull down statues is to is to erase history and it's something that's been doing at the behest of a woke mob but we're going to look at some examples of where that happens in in multiple different ways and and the first example I want to look at is William Duke of Cumberland remind us who he was and why there was a statue in the first place and why then at some point it was decided that this wasn't a great idea well, I mean, he shows us a sort of fascinating change in British slash English slash Scottish opinion, really. So basically, he was prince, he was the son of the king, and he was a military commander. And during the Jacobite uprising, he was sent to Scotland with British troops to quell the incursion in and the kind of Jacobite invasion um, with Bonnie Prince Charlie. And he notoriously led troops at Culloden who really kind of behaved horrendously. Um, Not only did that turn into a massacre, but really very much a massacre of civilians as well. Um, Now, at the time that this actually happened in the 18th century, he was very widely praised for this. Now, there was all sorts of complexity around that in that, yeah, history got erased a lot at the time as well, in that news of what had actually happened wasn't really reported in London. It was actually suppressed. You know, instead, the impression was given that he had done this great heroic thing. And Highlanders were really portrayed as savages. I mean, you can really see the kind of, you know, these imperial prejudices being exchanged forwards and backwards in that the Scots really are described in terms which are the kind of terms that they would have used for other colonial peoples as well. And so he was seen as this great 
liberal hero, you know, came back to London and Handel wrote music dedicated to him. And this big statue went up just off Oxford Street. But what happened after that, you know, after the Jacobite rebellion kind of calmed down and Britain was kind of a bit more united and then you had um, the Regency period with Prince Regent, who then became George IV, who was actually quite keen on Scotland, didn't have these kind of older prejudices. And he was actually the first monarch for, for centuries to go up to Scotland, got himself a special kilt made, you know, liked to prance around in it. And so at this time, it started to become a bit embarrassing that there were these statues of Cumberland, because of course, by then everybody knew that really he had just massacred lots of people. So it started to become embarrassing. Then when Queen Victoria came in, that got even more extreme because Victoria loved Scotland. She loved Balmoral, of course, which she bought with Albert, her husband. You know, they loved prancing around in Tartan. They really, you know, got very into the idea of being Scottish lairds and all of this stuff. I mean, it's all quite hilarious, really, and patronising when you look back at it now. But, you know, this was nonetheless sincere at the time. And she actually said that she considered herself a Jacobite. She believed in that cause. So by that point, it really did become quite embarrassing. So Queen Victoria herself actually became a bit of a statue toppler in that there was a big obelisk dedicated to Cumberland's victory at Culloden at Windsor and she actually had Culloden erased off that obelisk to make it more neutral Um, and then the Cumberland statue in London really just became more and more embarrassing and uh, so it was taken down actually in the 19th century because no longer was it fashionable to um, antagonise against Scotland at that point they were trying to unite Britain and really incorporate Scots so this is something that's happened a lot historically you know and really it's kind of interesting to see that sometimes you know, now, as you say, it's kind of all about this woke mob who are anti-statues. But of course, often it was the conservatives in the past who were taking them down. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Alex von Tonsemann, and we're talking about her new book, Fallen Idols, 12 Statues That Made History. Alex, there's, well, there's some competition for who is the most revolting character in this book. Um, <laughs> one of them who, who, you know, has a good shot at it is um, Rafael Truillo, the, um, the former dictator of the Dominican Republic, and someone who, again, in terms of ideas around erasing history is somebody who for many reasons has been forgotten is not a famous historical monster as he perhaps should be exactly and that's sort of a fascinating story in that I was kind of really that was one of the ones that I was looking into thinking okay can we say that removing statues on this occasion erased history effectively so Trujillo was dictator of the Dominican Republic for about three decades leading up to the early 1960s and he was he was really an extraordinarily complete monster I mean if anyone has heard of him they've quite possibly heard of him because of um, Mario Vargas Llosa's novel The Feast of the Goat which kind of it's an extraordinary read. If you haven't read it, I really recommend it. And very accurate, actually, to what Trujillo was like. You know, he really was a complete monster and very comparable, really, to other 20th century dictators like Stalin. But, you know, fortunately for history, I suppose, he only had quite a small island nation to work with, which meant he had fewer people to oppress and kill. But he did behave completely horrendously within that kind of capacity. And, you know, what differentiates him kind of fascinatingly from other dictators, you know, or some other dictators is that he was also extremely concerned with projecting his own sexual prowess. He was, this is why he was called the goat, is that he was very, very invested in his own potency. So he particularly liked to put up statues of himself with massive, extremely unsubtle phallic obelisks nearby or behind them. Um, He was very, very keen on these. And like the couple that survive really are quite extraordinary. They really, you know, it's not subtle. This isn't some art historian saying, oh, it's a phallic object when it's like a plain obelisk. It's like, no, it really is quite anatomically detailed. It really does look exactly like what he intended it to look like. So he put up so many statues and monuments to himself. I mean, every public building had to have a plaque dedicated to him. You know, there were images of him absolutely everywhere. Um, And in 1961, finally, you know, after many, many years of agitation against him inside and outside the Dominican Republic from other Latin American countries, he finally bit the bullet that effectively he was assassinated by a group of his domestic enemies, but that, you know, they were basically armed by the CIA by this point. The Americans had also had enough of him after, I'm afraid, supporting him for quite a long time. So he was finally assassinated. And, you know, then there was a sort of power struggle. And all of his statues were not only removed, but criminalised. You actually cannot even today put up a statue of Trujillo in the Dominican Republic. That would actually be illegal, much as in Germany, they made it illegal to do to display Nazi statuary or swastikas after uh, World War II. They did something very similar in the Dominican Republic, completely banned that image. And so this is why I was looking into, did that erase history? But what became apparent quite quickly is that actually, although the history is poorly removed, Remembered. A lot of the reason for that is that after Trujillo was killed, you know, there was this power struggle and then there was a kind of small flourish of democracy. And then I'm afraid the Americans who were very worried about communism because Fidel Castro in Cuba had just, you know, kind of really 
shaken them. Lyndon Johnson panicked when he was, it was reported to him that communism was getting a hold in the Dominican Republic, which it wasn't. And a full-scale invasion called Operation Power Pack was done of the Dominican Republic in 1965. And effectively what happened is that Trujillo's henchmen just got back into power. And so what they ensured, um, statues were by then all gone, but what they ensured is that the history wasn't taught in schools, that people were not informed about what had happened under Trujillo. So the way that they erased history was actually not the statues that had really nothing to do with it. You didn't need to keep those up at all. But it was about public education. It was about the curriculum. And it was about the suppression of different views and what you were allowed to discuss. So, you know, the reason that I think Trujillo is poorly remembered today, and there are very, very contradictory opinions on this in the Dominican Republic, is largely because that history was deliberately suppressed, but the statues themselves had nothing to do with it. While we're on the subject of complete bastards, (laughs) um, let's talk about the man who for a moment makes you feel slightly better about the British Empire, who is, of course, King <laughs> Leopold II of the Belgians. Um, and the, you talk in the, in the book about the sort of parallel stories of the statues of him, both in Belgium and in the Congo. And I don't know how I've somehow managed to, managed to miss this before, but I was not aware before reading your book to the extent at which, even more so than like the East India Company operated as part of, it's sort of an adjunct to the, uh, to the British Empire, before, you know, before the British Empire proper, that the Congo was literally the private property of Leopold rather than the Empire of Belgium. Absolutely. Yeah, it was. I mean, his own private property, this absolutely enormous swathe of Central Africa. And of course, he never even visited it, but technically owned it and could do what he liked with it. And this sort of came out of, I mean, it's a little bit complicated exactly how it happened. But, you know, if anyone wants to look into it, it kind of came out of the Berlin Conference where in late 19th century, where European powers effectively just divided up. Um, Africa between themselves really in that and kind of in various negotiations around that so he managed to get himself personally named owner of this so it was a private colony and that's why you know really what happened in the Congo Free State as it was called and you know that sounds very ironic but the free was of course supposed to refer to free trade what happened in the Congo Free State really was a massive massive scandal at the time so again when a lot of people are saying oh he was a man of his time they viewed things differently back then well they absolutely didn't I mean in the case of Leopold the incredible horrific abuses in the Congo did actually begin to make international news at the time and you had lots and lots of global celebrities got involved in the campaign against Leopold you know, people like Mark Twain Arthur Conan Doyle Booker T Washington you know really international figures were condemning him at the time so this was not this isn't some back projection of you know maybe he was all right no he was <laughs> extremely uh, vicious and this this was very very much a massive massive story at the time and of course again let's go to novels lots of people may have read uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness which was another major way of exposing what was going on uh, in the Congo Free State at the time so he actually you know Leopold really committed he was ultimately the man who was responsible for everything that was happening in the Congo Free State he was heavily in denial about it and insisted that he was a good man who had ended slavery and that he made no money out of it but that really didn't square with what was going on and actually in the end the Belgian government took over the colony removed it from his control and when Leopold died you know in in 1909 he actually pretty much died in disgrace largely because this had happened so at that point you know it was no longer private it was being administered then by the Belgian government so they can take the stick for whatever happened from then onwards but yeah he died in disgrace and then there's this sort of campaign after World War One of course Europe had gone through its own traumas the Belgian royal family started to want to rehabilitate him. And that's really, see, what you really see is in the 1920s and 30s, lots and lots of statues of him 
going up again and again a kind of quite a deliberate attempt actually to put those statues up to erase the history that had been previously extremely well known of what had actually happened. Um, and actually, to a pretty large extent, it worked for a very, very long time. It was really only in the kind of 1980s, 1990s that uh, first sort of Belgian and Congolese historians and then um, American historians like Adam Hochschild wrote this book, King Leopold's Ghost, in 1998, that really started to remind the world, actually recover that history and remind the world that what had actually happened in the Congo Free State. And that's when Leopold's statues started to become really, in Belgium itself, started to become a, a forum for protest. People started painting them red and, uh, in one case, chopping the hand off one and all of this was, you know, that was in response really to, to this rediscovered history. One of the rejoinders to, you know, the idea that uh, a lot of the um, culture warriors will say is that, you know, this is mob justice. You know, we listened to mob justice to pull down one of these statues would be to say, oh, yeah, wasn't it terrible when that mob pulled down that statue of Saddam Hussein? <laughs> Turns out this story was uh, that statue. Well, we can all remember where we were, when, uh, you know, when George W. Bush single-handedly uh, defeated Iraq and pulled down that statue of, of Saddam. Turns out that that was slightly more of a um, of an orchestrated event. Yes, that was very much, you know, that event is very disputed and it was a fascinating one to write about because it's really quite complicated who did what and at what point. And there are Iraqis who claim to have been, and indeed you can verify they were involved in the pulling down of that statue, but there's no way it would have happened without quite extensive involvement from American troops. And there are big questions about whose idea it was in the first place, whether the American troops really instigated it. What they certainly did was heavily support it. So that statue i mean there were literally thousands of statues of saddam in uh, in iraq and that one was not even a particularly notable one but unquestionably it was nonetheless quite large and the very small number of people in further square that day trying to put it down who were iraqi would not have got it down on their own it only got pulled down because the americans brought in a great big uh, armored vehicle and attached ropes to it and yanked it down for them so it was kind of orchestrated in that then this was presented as this moment that was almost the end of the story you know this was kind of the American troops had entered Baghdad and then the Iraqis, so the story went, spontaneously had pulled down this statue. And that was the story that was put out on all the news channels at the time, even though there were plenty of journalists in Baghdad saying that was not actually what was happening at all. It was the Americans doing it. Nonetheless, this story went out around the world. And it was so, those images, as you say, you remember them because they were on TV literally about every four minutes at that point. And news channels were just showing them on constant, constant rotation. So they really went into people's heads and everybody, uh, it's sort of the way it was presented really made a lot of people think that the war was over you know quite soon after that you had George Bush of course appearing on that ship and saying mission accomplished and uh, and it was presented as the end of the war but of course we now know it absolutely wasn't and this this was not some kind of you know spontaneous uh, Iraqi uprising it was a kind of fake event and of course it wasn't remotely the end of the war as we know troops actually stayed in Iraq for a long time after that then we were withdrawn they went back again you know and Iraq really today is still in a very bad state as a result of a lot of this. So, you know, it was kind of an attempt to make what they called a Berlin Wall moment, but the Berlin Wall really was spontaneously pulled down by people. It wasn't faked, you know. We've actually covered, talking about the actual statues, inevitably a lot of those um, those sort of spacious arguments that are used, you know, why are you trying to erase history? Surely so-and-so person was just a, a person of their time and like everybody else or you know why are we listening to mob justice so let's let's just finish off talking about the last of those arguments you look at which is the sort of slippery slope fallacy so where will this all end Alex? 
Oh, well, but it won't. I mean, you know, the fact is that this won't end because history will always be contentious. And what you see with these, I mean, it's been interesting looking at the statues in this book has made me kind of actually considerably more relaxed about the waves of history because what you see is that, you know, quite often statues get put up and then they get pulled down and people get very worried about it. And then actually sometimes they go back up again. Sometimes then they get pulled down again and then they go back up again. You know, this is there's a constant re-evaluation. And I think, you know, we have to be not frightened of the fact that people constantly want to re-evaluate history. This, after all, is what historians actually do, is constantly re-evaluate the past in response to new evidence and new perspectives that are brought in. So really, I think we have to allow people to have these discussions about history. And, you know, people get terribly anxious about it because they say, you know, oh, yeah, you know, who's next? Are they going to go after Churchill next? And the answer is, well, they can have discussions about anyone who they want. I mean, these people aren't untouchable. And much as we've talked about statues as sacred objects, but they're not gods, they're human beings. And of course, they will be assessed and reassessed. And, you know, it's totally possible that some future generation will take down the statue of Churchill. It's then possible that another future generation will put it back up again. Who knows? But we can't make the rules in perpetuity. I mean, statues, of course, are very, very literally an attempt to set a version of the past in stone. But as we can see again and again, that doesn't happen. People keep having ideas and we should really welcome that in a pluralist democratic society. Is there a better way, do you think, to commemorate people, events, historical events or whatever than sticking up a a statue of a person? I actually think there are loads of better ways. I think that statues are quite, you know, with their sort of individualism and a very strong association with kind of the idea of uh, great men theory of history, I think they're pretty passe, quite honestly. And I know that there are attempts, and I'm sure they are no doubt extremely well-intentioned to put up more statues of women or people of colour or whatever. But I think in a sense that doesn't help very much because you're not really breaking the mould. I would love to see kind of more... When we talk about memorialisation, you know, the ones that I find really effective, the memorials that I think are amazing, are often ones that are not so focused on individuals and try to tell a much broader story. So, I mean, I've talked about um, in the book about memorials such as um, across Germany and quite a lot of um, Europe now, the Stolpersteiner, which are these tiny little bronze plaques set into the street like little cobbles, and they put them outside a house with the names and dates and what happened to the Jewish occupants of that house or Roma occupants, whatever, during the Holocaust, various victims of the Holocaust are commemorated in this way. And there are now, I think, something like um, 70,000 or so of these across Europe. And I think they're completely amazing because you can actually, you can almost go past without seeing them at all because they're so small and set in the street. But once you start noticing them, you realise that there are actually huge numbers of these and every single one can tell you its own little story. So I think that's incredibly clever as a monument because it really connects you to the space and to the place, the physicality of what happened. But also it simultaneously brings home the idea that these are individual tragedies that are part of this much, much greater, awful thing that happened and that was done. And I think they're incredibly moving and it's a remarkable way to commemorate history so you know we can really be much more creative we don't have to constantly think about who's our big hero of the moment we can we can allow these these stories to exist both individual stories and in a greater context in much much more creative ways so i've been talking to alex von tunzelman we've been talking about her book fallen idols 12 statues that made history which is out now in the uk from headline alex thank you so much for sharing it with me thank you neil cheers take care This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. 
If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.